Glad that you're here. If you have your Bibles, we are in the book of Philippians. We are in chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 12 through 21. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Turning to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 21 this morning. Apostle Paul writes, starting in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1, he says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill, the former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The title of my study this morning is Turning Discouragement into Joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to be in your word, knowing, Lord, that it's your desire to speak to our hearts. We're excited, Lord, to hear what you have to say to us, what ways you want to, to teach us this morning. And so we just pray for attentive ears. We pray that uh, you would move in our hearts today, Lord. We pray that if there's anyone here that is yet to come to know you as a Lord and Savior, to have their sin forgiven, we pray that you'd especially touch their heart today and they would see who you are. And, and learn to love you as so many of us do. We thank you for this time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I read a story about a farmer who was discouraged with his farm. So he decided he was going to sell and he was going to move somewhere else. So he engaged a realtor and, to look over the farm and prepare a sales ad for it. But before putting it in the paper, the, the owner wanted to, to hear what it was going to sound like to see if it meets his approval. And so the realtor came and said, well, here it is. What do you think? The ad says, farm for sale, good location, a well-maintained house, sturdy barns, lush pasture lands, a beautiful pond, fertile soil, and a great view. The farmer listened carefully and then said, read that to me again. So the realtor read it again. And finally, the farmer said, stop, don't print that ad. I'm not selling. I've always wanted a place just like that. See, how you look at something can make a world of difference on how you behave. Now, immediately I think of the characters in Winnie the Pooh. I mean, if you have kids, you've seen Winnie the Pooh. You have Eeyore. You know, he's always gloomy, you know, depressed, this old gray donkey that lives in a house made of sticks in Pooh Corner. He goes around all day in this perpetual state of gloom and despair. Don't worry about me. Go on, you know, with yourselves. I'll stay here and be miserable. Could be worse. Not sure how, but it could be. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have Tigger. Now, the wonderful thing about Tiggers 
is tiggers are wonderful things. Their tops are made of the rubber. Their, their bottoms are made out of springs. They're bouncy, trouncy, flouncy, pouncy. Fun, 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 fun. Tiggers are always positive. Now, if you were to put the Apostle Paul into Pooh Corner, what character would he be? Man, he would definitely be a tigger. Why? Well, tiggers with their top made out of rubber would make you very flexible. Paul was very flexible. With the bottoms made out of springs, that makes you very active. And Paul was definitely active. I'm sure Paul was always this fun type of active character to be around. One thing I know for sure, he was not a New York. You know, never, don't worry about me, go on about yourself. No, even in the worst circumstances, Paul had a positive attitude. We're going to see that this morning. If you're taking notes, we're going to see three things. We're going to see Paul's change, number one. Number two, Paul's critics. And then Paul's concern, number three. But in each one, Paul doesn't just respond like Eeyore. He responds as a tigger. This brings us to point number one, Paul's chains. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Paul says, I want you to know, brethren, the things which happened to me. Well, what happened to Paul? Well, Paul's plan was to go to Jerusalem with a whole bunch of money that he was going to give to, to the Jerusalem church because they were desperately in need. He collected the money from the Gentile churches and he was going to present it back to Jerusalem. And so before he goes, he writes to the Romans and he tells them, when I'm done with that, I'm going to come to you because I, I want to encourage you. And then I want to go to Spain. So I'm going to preach the gospel where Christ has never been named. That was his plan. But that's not what happened to Paul. What happened to Paul is that he made it to Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. He's suddenly falsely accused. The Jews thought he had desecrated their temple by bringing a Gentile to it. The Romans thought he was an Egyptian renegade who was on their most wanted list. And so the temple guards, they arrested him. He's beaten. He's humiliated. He's then again falsely accused and then sent to Caesarea where he spends two years in jail. His case is heard three different times. A total miscarriage of justice happens. Finally, Paul appeals to Caesar. He gets put in a prison boat, not a Norwegian cruise line, you know, but a prison boat that shipwrecks. Okay? But he survives, and finally he's taken to Rome, where he is currently resides in chains in a prison in Rome, writing this letter to the Philippians. And we think we have troubles. I mean, someone once said, God speaks to us through the regularity in which he disappoints our plans. That was not Paul's plan. See, Paul was an, an evangelist. He was free as a bird. He was a church planner who loved to share the gospel wherever he went. But now he's restricted. He's in prison. He's confined. He's in chains. So it seems like he's really not able to uh, fulfill his passion. He had every right to become Eeyore, to look at those prison walls and say, Oh, woe is me. Must be something I deserve. God wants me to be miserable. Not Paul. Look at verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things, things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, I like this word furtherance. It's an, it's an interesting word. It's a Greek word, prokope, which means making advanced progress. It has an interesting history. It originally was used for woodcutters who would go before an army clearing the way through the underbrush so that the army can then march forward without uh, any sort of uh, uh, obstructions in the way. So Paul is saying, all these things that have happened to me have resulted in clearing the way 
so the gospel can be preached more effectively. Let me say this, that sometimes God has to put chains, so to speak, on his people to get them to accomplish a mighty work in their life that would not be there except for those chains. Let me explain. You might feel like you are chained at a job and you go there every day and you go, I hate this job. I want out. I'm in a prison here. You might feel you know, confined in a relationship or a responsibility that has come your way and you feel trapped. Oh, I just, oh I'm just trapped in this. I got to do this. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. And you feel overwhelmed and chained to to home caring for your children. Listen, God can use those chains in a way that you may never imagine to reach people with the message of the gospel, with the hope of salvation. I think of Susanna Wesley, who was the mother of 19 children. Can you imagine that? 19 children. And she lived the age before disposable diapers and washing machines. Man. But out of that family came John and Charles Wesley, whose combined ministries shook the British Isles. Or look at Fanny Crosby. At six, years, uh, six weeks of age, rather, she was blinded. But even as a youngster, she determined not to be confined by the chains of darkness. In time, she became, became a mighty force for God through her hymns and through her gospel songs. You see, the secret is this. When you look on your circumstances as God-given opportunities to furtherance of the gospel, you can rejoice in what God is going to do rather than complaining about what God hasn't done. The Apostle Paul understood this. He said, you guys, you're looking at my chains and you're thinking I'm bound. Man, I'm miserable. And let me tell you, these chains, they've released me. I'm now free for the very first time because in the confines of my catastrophe... The love of God has been so experienced that now I can express it and I'm expressing it through these love letters that I'm writing from prison, letting the rest of the world know that I serve a loving God. That's why he can say as a result, it's actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. In fact, Paul actually gets a little bit comical here, I think. Look at verse 13. He says, So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. So basically Paul is saying, Okay, I keep moving from house arrest to prison, house arrest to prison, and they keep chaining me to these guards. And these guards keep, you know, rotating from time to time. Every two, every day, two guards sit next to me, and every day they say, Hey, Paul, what are you in for? And I say, I'm here for the gospel. Do you know the gospel? No? Well, let me tell you the gospel. You know, and, and now break time comes, and, and all the guards are sitting around asking, well, Who's watching Paul today? I am. Man, you're going to hear the gospel. I already did. I'm already a Christian. Yeah, so am I. You know, And one after another, God's just bringing these guards in and they're getting saved. See, although Paul's circumstances were beyond difficult, he knew that God was in control and he was working these difficulties together for good. Paul didn't let this imprisonment devastate him like many of us would. Instead, he reminded himself of this truth that we all know, but I think we forget. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Paul actively looked for the good that was resulting, and he found it. And the same thing is true for each one of us. If we look for the good that results, we will see it. But man, if we spend our days like Eeyore, whining and complaining about how tough it is, how stretched we are, we will never see it. Paul could already see a couple of immediate examples of the good happening. Number one, the furtherance of the gospel. Number two, the palace guards were getting saved. Number three, Paul says, not only that, I'm excited about those two things happening, but because of my chains, look at verse 14, 
Most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Man, I love that. He's saying, because of my hardships, because of the things that have happened to me, other Christians are being encouraged. They, they're, they're seeing how God has taken care of me and protected me through these difficult situations, how God has encouraged me and how God has given me the strength beyond my own power to get through this. See, just as discouragement can be something that spreads rather quickly, so does encouragement even faster. Because of Paul's joyful attitude, the believers in Rome were encouraged and they, be, they were much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Let me ask you this morning, what hardship has happened in your life that others could look to you in your life and say, well, God really gave them the strength to get through that time in their life. Man, if God can be that, if they can be that strong in that situation, I'm sure that God can see me through whatever it is that I'm going through right now. I think of, of Joseph in his life. You know, he was sold by his brothers into slavery, falsely accused, thrown into prison. Yet we can look back at his life and see that he never once turned his back on the Lord. And despite all of the hardships and the things that he went through, God used him mightily uh, uh, in, in helping his family. In fact, we're told in Genesis 50:20, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as at this day to save many people alive. See, those trials, those difficulties, those struggles you're going through right now, those chains, so to speak, they open up doors to people who would not otherwise give us the time of day. And when a wife hangs in there with her difficult husband, when an employee refuses to talk behind his boss's back, when a high schooler willingly submits to his parents, people take note of that. And it opens up that opportunity for that wife or that employee or that high schooler to share the reason why. Listen, have you ever been in that situation where you were able to encourage someone that is experiencing the same thing you experienced only a year previously? And you're able to go up to them and share with them. Maybe they're on the verge of divorce. Maybe they're struggling at work. Maybe their, their high schooler is having a hard time with their parents. And you can go up to them and say, hey man, hang in there. Man, the Lord is so good. Let me tell you how the Lord saw me through this difficulty in my life. Let me encourage you what God can do in your life and because what He's done in my life. That's why Paul would later on write in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us through our difficulties so we might be able to comfort those that are going through difficulties as well. That's what Paul is talking about here in verse 14. saying, because of the difficulties I'm going through, God is using it to give others boldness, boldness to keep going, boldness to speak the word without fear. Now here's the thing, when Paul wrote these words of encouragement, he had no clue the impact that it would make in this world even some 2,000 years later. He had no idea that his words would become a part of a greater book that would be so much help for so many people today. He didn't know that his writings would be part of a book that would be the number one bestseller of all time. Paul is just saying, man, hold on, everything's going to be all right. You better this, Paul. Because from our perspective now, we can look back and, and see how Paul has ministered to, to millions upon millions of people just by writing this letter to the Philippians. 
My point is God can take the most negative things that happen to us in our life and he can make them positive and use them for his glory. Therefore, we need to focus on the, the, the positive. What, 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 what are you chained to this morning? Are you chained to a, maybe an imperfect body or a declining health? Maybe you're chained to a job with, with no future. Maybe you're chained to some loneliness or grief or despair. Then you need to stop and ask, how can God use this to advance the gospel? God, how can you, I use this in my life to bring you glory? That brings us to point number two, Paul's critics. Look at verse 15. Paul writes, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Now, who are Paul's critics? Well, verse 15 says, Some indeed preach. Who are the some? Well, if you go back to verse 14, Paul clarifies that some of those are some of the the brethren. These guys were believers. They were Christians living in Rome at the time that Paul wrote this letter. Now, these aren't heretics. They're not idol worshipers. These are people who preach Christ. These are the kinds of people that maybe just kind of agitate other people and how they do what they're doing. And, and, and they're, you know, the people, they're not attacking Paul's message as much as they don't like Paul as a person for some reason. Now, I don't know, maybe it's because of the way he looked. You know, I've, I've shared this before. People thought that Paul was kind of short and kind of bow legs and a crooked nose. And, and man, I don't like that guy. He's kind of, you know, kind of walking around like that. I don't know. I don't like the way he looks. I don't think that's the case, though. I think that the fact that Paul says they're preaching out of envy gives us the reason why they don't like him. Is that word envy there? means to be jealous over somebody's success. It's been described as grief over somebody else's good. To be envious. Jealousy over someone being successful. So what we have here is Paul is, is an apostle. He's a gifted teacher. He's very successful. So he's a perfect target for those coming against him. See, envy, envy is a poisonous but powerful motivator that lives uh, in the lives of some people. In fact, I read about a story about a merchant in a small town who ran a store across the street from another merchant, and they were huge competitors, and the one merchant began to envy the other. And one night, a genie appeared to the envious merchant. True story. And, and uh, No, it's not a true story. <laughs> and said, I will grant you one wish, but with the provision that whatever you want, your rival will get twice as much. If you want more wealth, more business, more happiness, your rival is going to get twice as much as that. Now, what do you want? Well, the envious merchant replied, thought for a minute, minute, and then replied, I want to be blind in one eye. How horrible. That's horrible, isn't it? I mean, that's what envy does. What happens when people become envious of someone else? They, They want to tear them down. They want to destroy them. And they point out the negative things that that can be about that person, thinking that by pulling themselves down, they're building themselves up. In reality, they're just building them, putting themselves down. See, Paul was successful, but people were jealous of his success. I think of of Billy Graham, powerful man of God over the years, and how people have been jealous of his success. And they've tried over the years to discredit him. They've tried to tear him down. Yet at 97 years of age, he has one of the most spotless reputations of our time. I mean, books have been written about his life, his ministry, and over his lifetime, investigative reporters have tried to find anything they could to criticize him. Why? 
Because they, they envied his integrity. So they wanted to come against him. So they looked into their fi- his finances, couldn't find anything. They looked into his marriage, couldn't find anything. Every facet of his life, they, I mean, they re- really couldn't find anything to condemn him on. In fact, one of the reasons why is because when Billy Graham would go on crusades, he would send people out ahead to check out his hotel accommodations to make sure that there's no woman had been planted there so that no tabloid photographers could take his picture with her and spread malicious gossip. He was very cautious to make sure there wasn't any room for suspicion. But in, in spite of his cautiousness and precautions, during a crusade in Paris, France, a newspaper headline proclaimed, Billy Graham spends night with woman other than his wife. They claimed that the hotel registry showed that a woman was registered and spent the night with him in his hotel room. They even printed her name. It was Beverly Shea. Now, most of you who are familiar with the ministry of Billy Graham know that his soloist and his best friend was George Beverly Shea. He went home to heaven a few years back. But you see, in their effort to defame Billy Graham, the tabloids had made a big mistake thinking George Beverly Shea, you know, Beverly Shea was a woman. Listen, to this day, Billy Graham's integrity is intact. When his son, Franklin, asked him recently why at 97 years old God has not taken his father home yet to heaven, Franklin Graham replied this, is I think it's a comfort to Christians, especially now we see Christians under attack in our country, and this is something we're going to see more and more of this, it's comforting my father is still present. Even though he's not able to speak as much as he used to, he's still present. And I think that is a great encouragement to many people to know that Billy Graham is still with us. I like that. Why? Because he's a man of integrity. And you can look at his life and, and see how God used him mightily in preaching the gospel and is still preaching the gospel with the example of his life. So Paul is saying, listen, there are those believers who are preaching the gospel, but they're preaching it with envy and strife. Yeah, there was those preaching out of love, and that's great. But 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 he's mentioned, you know, he mentioned envy and strife actually several times in this epistle. So there must have been quite a few who were preaching the gospel that way, envious of the apostle Paul, jealous because they didn't have the results that Paul had in the ministry. But even in mentioning the fact that there were those preaching out of envy and strife, Paul bounces right back and says, "But there are those also preaching out of goodwill." See, he's going, I'm not going to look at the negative. I'm not going to focus on the negative. So listen, let's focus on the good. He says in verse 16, The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my change, but the latter, out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. Paul uses an interesting word in verse 16, selfish ambition. It means to canvas for an office, to get people to support you. And I think we've seen that, you know, over the years, these pastors, they come on the scene and, and they're looking to create a following, an empire. And it's not really about changing lives. It's about supporting their ministry, have this big church, have this big following. Yeah, they preach Christ, but, but man, you know, and I know, it's insincere. But here's Paul's point. Even when Christ is preached insincerely, people get saved. Why? Because God honors his word, not the man or the organization. We need to recognize that today. The Spirit of God is the only one who can bring blessings and He can bless only when the Word of God is given out. And Paul is saying there are those preaching Christ, but their motive, their desire is to campaign. It's to to get a following, to build up their ministry. And while they're doing that, they're also bad-talking me, thinking that as they're doing this, they're adding to my afflictions and my chains. How does Paul respond? Probably deserve it. Could be worse. Not sure how it could be, but it could be. Not Paul. Look at verse 18. This is powerful. He says, what then? 
Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul basically says, I've got news for them, I don't really care what their motive is in preaching the gospel, all I care about is the gospel is being preached. There's no envy in his heart, there is no strife in his heart, just excitement that the gospel was going forth. It reminds me of the two great English evangelists, John Wesley and George Whitfield. They both were very successful in preaching to thousands of people and seeing multitudes come to Christ, yet they disagreed on doctrinal matters. It was reported that one time someone asked Wesley if he expected to see Whitfield in heaven. And the evangelist replied, No, I do not. Then do you think that Whitfield is, is a do you not think that Whitfield is a converted man? Of course he is a converted man, Wesley said. But I do not expect to see him in heaven because he will be so close to the throne of God and I so far away that I will not be able to see him. Though he differed with his Christian brother in some matters, Wesley did not have any envy in his heart nor did he seek to oppose Whitfield's ministry. You know, criticism is, is usually very hard to take, particularly when we're going through difficult circumstances as Paul was. But again, Paul says, I don't care what you think about me. The important thing that is in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. That's why we'll get into this in a couple of weeks. Paul will say in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, that tell us that nothing be done through selfish ambition. There's that word again, canvassing, campaigning. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but a lowliness of mind that each esteem others better than himself, that each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. So I believe Paul is saying that if we look into people, instead of down on people, we would be filled with compassion for people. Let me say that again. If we look into people, instead of down on people, we would be filled with compassion for people. Let me give you another, another example. Pat Riley, considered one of the greatest coaches in NBA history, coached his team to five national championships, receiving three Coach of the Year awards while coaching the, the Los Angeles Lakers, the New York Knicks, and the Miami Heat. He once told this story about Magic Johnson. Now, for those of you that don't know who Magic Johnson is, let me say that I don't think he was a good role model in most areas of his life, but he was one of the greatest basketball players who ever were. Riley said that when Johnson was in junior high school, his basketball talent was already obvious. He was so much better than the rest of the team that he would score 50 points while the others would score five, and they won every single game. But the other players on his team were very unhappy because they didn't get the ball or a chance to shoot very often. And the parents were unhappy too. So Magic Johnson decided to change his role on the team. He would become an enabler, passing the ball to others, making them look good. He played only two years in college before he was uh, drafted to the NBA. He went on to the Los Angeles Lakers, a team made up of uh, a lot of superstars. They were great players, but they weren't winning because they were all playing for themselves. Well, Pat Riley said that Magic Johnson became a catalyst, deciding once again to make the other players look good. So he went to Byron, Byron Scott and said, I'm going to make you the number one scorer on this team. I'm going to pass the ball to you, and you're going to score. Byron Scott did. He went to James Worthy and asked, why haven't you ever made the all-star team? I'm going to make you make the all-star team. And he started passing the ball to James Worthy, and soon James Worthy was on the all-star team. Then during the season, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar set a record as the highest scorer in NBA history. But before that happened, Magic Johnson had told him, you can do it, and I want to be the guy who passes you the ball when you make that basket. 
O'Reilly said on the night when it appeared that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar might have the chance to sink that record-breaking basket, Magic got off the bench, bench put himself in the game, passed the ball to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who shot it through the hoop, and the record was shattered. O'Reilly said, if you look at the videotape, you'll see Magic Johnson, Johnson leaping into the arms of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and, uh, and, and you can just see the tears streaming down his cheeks. He said that he was the most unselfish basketball player I've ever seen. Now here's my question. If that attitude can happen in basketball, shouldn't it happen in our lives as well? If we can become that unselfish, then our desire to make other people look good, to encourage each other, to bid each other up, isn't that exactly what we're supposed to be doing as Christians? Paul says, I'm not going to put my critics down. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to stay focused. The only thing that matters to me is that the gospel is being preached and they're preaching the gospel and I think that's great. And then Paul says this, look at verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Man, talk about being positive. He's in chains. He's not knowing if he's ever going to be released or or when. He, He knows people are talking about him. He knows they're criticizing him. You know, no doubt they're saying, well, he deserves what he gets. And what does Paul say? says, for I know, not for I think, or there's a possibility, says, for I know that I'm going to be delivered. Why? Because you guys are praying for me. He says, and because you guys are praying for me, my God will supply power from on high through the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ to see me through this difficulty. Man, that is faith. I love that. That word supply there, it gives us our English word chorus. Whenever a Greek city would, um, was going to have a special festival, somebody had to pay for all the singers and the dancers. And the donation had to be a lavish one. And so this word came to mean to provide generously and lavishly. Paul was, was confident that he would be delivered because of the prayers and because the Holy Spirit had provided generously and lavishly all that he needed to see to make it through. Do you know that today? The same Holy Spirit will generously and lavishly give you the strength to make it through. I love Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things, lavishly, abundantly, of the Holy Spirit? Now, Paul did have one concern. And that brings us to a final point. Number one is chains. Number two is critics. Number three, Paul's concern. See, Paul is facing trial in Rome. If he's found innocent, he'll be free to preach some more. If he's found guilty, he's going to be executed. He knew that he either was going to live or he was going to die, depending upon the results of the trial. And so here is his concern. Look at verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Here's what Paul is saying. My only concern is, when I stand before that pagan judge, before that pagan court, that I'm not going to say or do anything that's going to embarrass Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. My only concern is that I will have enough courage to stand up in their midst and by what I say and do, that Jesus Christ will be exalted, that Jesus Christ will be magnified. His only concern was that the honoring of Jesus Christ with his life. In fact, he says that Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Think about this. Does Christ need to be magnified? I mean, you know, how can a mere human being ever magnify the Son of God? It's like looking to the sun in the sky and say, oh, that sun needs to be magnified. No, it's pretty bright. 
it's pretty big. But think about this. When you look through a telescope and you're looking up at the stars, the stars are much bigger than the telescope, and yet that telescope magnifies them and brings them closer. In the same way, our lives are to be a telescope that brings Jesus Christ close to people. See, to the average person, Christ is a, is a misty figure in history who lived centuries ago. But as the unsaved watch you, the believer, go through a crisis, go through a time of difficulty, they can see Jesus magnified and brought so much closer. See, to the Christian, Christ is with us here and now. He's big. He's magnified. Now, just as the telescope brings distant things closer, the microscope makes small things bigger, does it not? To the unbeliever, Jesus is, is, is not very big. Uh, other people and other things are far more important to the unbeliever. But as the unbeliever watches the Christian go through Christ's experience, he ought to be able to see how big Jesus Christ truly is. See, our lives are a lens that makes a little Christ look very big and a distant Christ come very close. And Paul's concern that he wanted to magnify Christ even in prison, even at court, even before the judge, even without ever knowing what the next day would bring. Listen, that's how he could turn any discouragement that he faced into joy. I know that it's easy to look at Paul's life and say, well, the trials and the struggles he faced, he would get through them. Why? Because he's the Apostle Paul. You know, he's like superhero Paul. You know, he can go through it, man. But I've got real hang-ups. I've got real problems and I am really discouraged. And there are chains and there are critics and there are real concerns. Listen, I know that sometimes in the trials and the struggles that we all face, that we're not experiencing that joy, but instead we're asking why. We're saying, God, why me? Why am I going through this? How come? Have you ever been in that situation? When you're in a situation and you just can't figure it out, there's no way maybe you can pay that bill or there's no way you can resolve that conflict. There's no way that that you see the situation can be turned around and you realize that your only hope is in God. And you get to the point where you say, God, I don't have any place else to go. No one else understands my situation. I mean, no one else understands the dynamics of my life. I have nowhere else to go. But my wife, I can't explain it to her. My kids are too young. I can't share this with anybody but you, Lord. Let me tell you, that's not a bad place to be. Because when we get to the end of ourselves, we get to the beginning of God and what God wants to do. Let me tell you, there's been times in my life, not very many, but I'm in, when I'm in that depth of despair, if you would, in that crisis, when I say, God, I really need your presence. And he comes in. And I, and I, and I sense his presence and his love and his compassion. And I'm encouraged in a way that I've never imagined before. My encouragement is turned into joy. I experienced this with my mom. She went to be with the Lord some 28 years ago. She was 56 years old when the Lord took her home. It's one of the saddest days of my life, but it was one of the joyous and closest days of my life to the Lord. As she laid there in that hospital bed and the Lord took her, the presence of God, I felt, was so strong in that room that if I could just rub my eyes... If I could just focus, I, I, I would see my Lord taking my mom's hand and escorting her into heaven. I felt that close to the Lord. I mean, I can't explain it very well. I'm just saying that, that God met me in my most severest trial at that time of my brokenness. But it was the sweetest triumph. Why? Because my God is an awesome God. And not only that, that God opened up the door for me to preach the gospel at her funeral, funeral in a Catholic church full of people. 
I mean, I, I was amazed. See, that's how it works. Understand that the Apostle Paul understood that though he was in chains, he was in chains by divine design. God actually placed him in that prison with all the pressure, stripping him of his family, his friends, and his freedom. But yet it didn't discourage Paul. Why? Because he knew that God had a plan and a purpose. So I think the sad thing is we're so busy running around in this thing called life that we never really slow down to cry out to God and find out just how it really is and how he is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think. If we would just stop for a moment and see that God is using all of what is going on in our lives for our good so that the world would see that there is a God, a God who loves them, a God who sent His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life, then we would be able to say, Lord, if this trial, if this difficulty is going to bring the gospel to people who never would see it any other way, then through the lens of what I am going through right now, then so be it, I rejoice in the furtherance of the gospel. That was Paul's heart. That in all things Christ would be magnified. That's why Paul could say in verse 21, a very well-known verse, and we'll close with this. It says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We'll make that our focus next time together. But Paul was so focused on Christ and the gospel going forth that he'd be filled with joy no matter what the circumstances. It didn't matter if, if he lived or died. He didn't worry about it. To live for Christ, to die, would be gain. See, he didn't worry about his future because he knew who had his future. It was Jesus Christ. I want to close with this story. It's a story about an eight-year-old boy named Frank. Frank had a date with his dad to go fishing on Saturday. They were going to fish the whole day. On Friday night, he had everything laid out. He was ready to go. But on Saturday morning, he awoke to discover that it was raining really hard and they couldn't go fishing. So eight-year-old Frank grumbled and griped and complained and moaned all morning long. He kicked the, the furniture. He kicked the dog. He kicked the cat. Nothing was right. Why does it have to rain today? Well, his dad explained, you know, son, you know, farmers need the rain, but that didn't satisfy Frank. Why does it have to rain today, he said. Well, about noon, the, cl- the clouds broke and the sun came out. His dad said, well, we, can, we can't go fishing all day, but at least we can fish this afternoon. Let's go. So they jumped in the truck and they went to the lake and fished all afternoon and caught more fish than they had ever caught ever before. The baskets were full and they had the time of their lives. They came home and mom uh, cooked some of the fish for supper. As they were sitting down to eat, Frank's dad looked at him and, and, and asked, Would you ask for the blessing? And eight-year-old Frank prayed this prayer. God, if I sounded a little grumpy earlier today, I'm sorry. It's because I couldn't see far enough ahead. That's the problem, isn't it? We're so caught up with our, our circumstances and people and things that's around us. We just can't see far enough ahead. But when you take time to look, you begin more and more to focus on the positive because in Christ we have a wonderful future. It may seem uncertain right now, but God is in control. No matter what you're facing, He has a divine plan and He will see you through. The Lord tells us, Jeremiah 29, 11, we know the verse, For I know the thoughts that I think of you, said the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now here's my prayer as we close. I don't know what you're going through in your life. I don't know how serious it is or what stress or strain is on your life to the point you might feel like, 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 like you might be breaking. I want to suggest to you that brokenness is not a bad thing. Go ahead and let God break you. Be broken before the Lord. 
Take, allow God to take you through the trial. We say, I am broken. I can't take it anymore. God, please help me before I give up and throw in the towel and quit. Then I pray as you hear his voice, as you sense his presence, because you will, that you move forward as a mature believer. And then as the world looks on and, and says, what is with that guy? How can he show so much joy under those circumstances? You can say, it's not because I'm under the circumstances. I'm under Jesus Christ. Listen, no Christian should be under the circumstances. Because no matter what happens in your life, you have this faith and trust and hope and joy in Jesus Christ. And, and then the world looks on and says, man, I want what he has. I want what she has. What do they have? We have Jesus. We have Jesus. That's who we have. That's my prayer for you. Listen, if you don't have Jesus this morning, then you've got nothing. Sorry to say, you've got nothing. And if you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, I invite you to receive Christ this morning. See, the same Jesus we're talking about went to the cross. He died for your sins. Took them all upon himself. Was buried in the grave for three days. He rose again three days later to prove that he has power over death and power over life. And if today you commit your life to him, he will forgive you of all your sin. He'll take that guilt and that shame away and he'll give you new life. He'll give you joy. He'll give you peace. But you've got to come to him. In fact, uh, Jesus, the Bible says in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. If you don't know Christ today, as soon as service is over, the elders will be up front. I'd love for you to come up front and, and ask them to pray with you and for you. Give your life to Jesus Christ. It's about what, what he wants to do with you. He wants to forgive you of your sin. Allow you to be born again. For us as believers, cry out to him. He's there. He's there to give us that joy. No more Eeyores, Tiggers this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the joy that you give us, Lord. Knowing that you are here in our midst, no matter what we're facing today, we can find that peace because you have a purpose and a plan. And God, I pray for each one here, Lord, and whatever they're going through right now, that, that as we cry out to you, Lord, we'll sense your presence, your power, lavishly, Lord, as Paul describes here, abundantly through your Holy Spirit that will sense that power. Lord, that may our life then be that example to those around us that don't know you, that they would see in us your love and grace and compassion. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. We pray, Lord, that you're glorified in our lives and all that we do. Lord, this week we pray as we go out that we would be that example, bringing people to you. We thank you for this time now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.